Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week is a special show focused on voting rights. Our first guest is the president and director of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Sherilyn Eiffel. Our next guest is Michael Waldman, the head of the Brennan Center, the foremost group spousing voting rights and criminal justice reform. And remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Real Paper, Blinkist, and HelloFresh in our show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, Sherilyn Eiffel is a towering figure in the fight for civil and equal rights in America. President of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, wearing the mantle first worn by the great Thurgood Marshall. Sherilyn, we really thank you for being with us this week. Uh, this this is a special week, celebrating Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, but it seems a very disappointing one, as the Senate seems very unlikely to pass a bill to protect basic voting rights for Americans. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. I so appreciate it. And um, yes, this is um, a difficult week in a difficult period in this country. We're in a pretty um, critical democratic moment. Um, and we have some choices laid before us of who we are going to be. And unfortunately, um, it is true, it appears unlikely that, um, and I've been listening to the hearings this morning, that Senate Republicans will uh, support changing uh, filibuster rules to try to move forward um, voting rights legislation. Even worse, uh, they don't want to change filibuster rules to have to actually do a filibuster, like a physical filibuster where you stand and deliver. Uh, and put your put your body where your mouth is. Um, they're not willing to do that, and um, and they're not willing to do it, you know, for reasons that I think are very apparent. Um, you know, I'm a voting rights litigator. The Legal Defense Fund, the organization I lead, we're in litigation in Georgia, in Texas, in Florida, um, around their new voter suppression laws. We're challenging Alabama's redistricting, South Carolina's redistricting. Uh, we are as busy as we can possibly be. Um, but we can't litigate our way out of what we've seen unfold over the last year uh, in terms of um, the kind of voter suppression le uh, legislation that's being passed at the state level. And we can't litigate our way out of the gerry gerrymandering that will lock in power uh, for one political party and lock out the voices of the communities of people I represent for decades to come. Sherilyn, let's stay on the voting rights uh, for a moment. Republicans say these laws are designed really only to prevent fraud, which, by the way, countless studies show is virtually non-existent, and, and they aren't really going to hinder voting, and they certainly aren't aimed at blacks. Yes. Well, uh, that, of course, is not true, um, and which is why I like our chances in the litigation. But, you know, I think what's important for people to recognize is that what we've seen happen this year is a direct response to what happened last year. So let's talk about what, when I, okay, I'm, I'm in the wrong year. It's already 2022. What we no, saw happen yeah. in 2021 is a direct response to what we saw in 2020. Um, and, and so let's talk for a minute about 2020. And by this, I don't mean to suggest that voter suppression began in 2020. I began at LDF as a voting rights lawyer in 1988. 
um, that's when I did my first tour of duty. Then I left in 1993, came back in 2013. In 2013, the Supreme Court decided the Shelby County versus Holder decision, which um, terribly weakened the Voting Rights Act. And we have really seen the extra proliferation of voter suppression legislation since then. Uh, within hours of the Supreme Court's decision in the, in the uh, Shelby County versus Holder case, Texas was passing its voter ID law. The Secretary of State of Florida declared, we're free and clear now. Uh, and we saw this begin to happen around the country. But what happened last year was very much a response to 2020, and it's almost as though we have forgotten the success of 2020. And if we don't pay attention to uh, when, we, when we are successful, then we don't understand the context in which there is backlash. And in 2020, we were in the midst of a global pandemic that none of us on this call have ever experienced before. Um, and the consequences of that uh, global pandemic were quite serious, particularly in the African-American community, especially in the first six to nine months of the pandemic. We were disproportionately represented among COVID uh, deaths and among those um, infected and seriously made ill by COVID. So one of the things we tried to do was to ensure that we could expand a form of voting that was not actually the form of voting most often used by black people, but actually most often used by white people and most often used by Republicans, which is absentee or mail-in voting. And so we started litigation in a number of Southern states, um, trying to remove some of the barriers during the pandemic. For example, in Alabama, you have to get two witnesses to sign your absentee ballot and you have to include a photo ID. And when we explained to the Secretary of State and, and others asked the Secretary of State, you know, could we have relief from these measures? You know, he said, I don't understand the problem. You could just go to Kinko's, right? So we had clients who were not even seeing their grandkids because this was in the midst of COVID who were isolating themselves. But now they had to find two witnesses or a notary public and they should go to Kinko's to make a copy of their driver's license to include in an absentee ballot. So we went in trying to litigate some of, some of these matters. Um, and, but what we saw in 2020 was that, so it's one, we had COVID. Number two, we had the mass protests that happened after the video of the killing of George Floyd was released. The largest civil rights protest this country has ever seen, multiracial in all 50 states. Incredible act activism and activism by young people. And particularly in our community, um, people were incredibly angry. This is obviously not a new issue for us, police violence against unarmed African-Americans. And many of us asked our communities and particularly our young people to channel that anger into voting. And they did. Um, they did. They did in... Um, in, 2020, in the 2020 general election, we asked um, sports figures to step up. They did. Uh, people like LeBron James helped us. We needed to recruit young poll workers because the elderly poll workers in our community didn't want to be exposed to COVID. And as you know, most people who work in the polls are, tend to be elderly. We were able to recruit 40,000 new poll workers to work in our communities to make sure that our poll centers could stay open. And we saw the highest turnout in any presidential election ever, not since 1900, because in 1900, women couldn't vote and most black people couldn't vote ever in the November 2020 election. Um, and we saw this incredible increase in black turnout. And then to make it even worse, we saw that heavy turnout continue for the special election in Georgia in January, which is what delivered the Senate to the Democrats. Five million black people voted in the election in Georgia in November and 4.5 voted in the special election in January. That's unheard of to have those numbers come out for a special election. 
And so what you then saw in 2021 with these state voter suppression laws was a response to that, to make sure that could never happen again. How else do you explain the, the law that says you can't give, you know, water or refreshments to people standing on li in line? It's because they knew that voters, black voters, stood in line for nine hours in Fulton County right. in the primary to vote. So the, it's all a response to what was the success of the channeled, overwhelming, massive turnout um, of voters in, in 2020. Sherilyn, let me quickly just ask you to rebut one more contention they're making. Mitt Romney said, hey, this Georgia law isn't any more restrictive than New York or Delaware. It really isn't any big deal. What's wrong with that? Well, first of all, I would never uh, defend New York's election laws until very recently. New York didn't even have early voting. It has been known for quite some time uh, to have pretty, pretty bad election laws. So that's not a defense. The question on the table is not whether there are other places that have bad election laws. The question is, why did Georgia choose to pass this law now? Why did Georgia, when there were 360,000 challenges to the, uh, to, to the um, adequacy of voters in the November 2020 election, and no, uh, none of them were substantiated, why did they decide now to add to their new law uh, the ability of any citizen to make unlimited challenges to anyone voting? Why did they take the power away from the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who refused to do President Trump's bidding, um, to to uh, manage which votes are disqualified and which are not. Why did they take that power away from the county board of elections and give it to a state board appointed by the legislature and remove the secretary of state from being chair of that board? That's the question. What was the motivation? Why did we suddenly need uh, these new laws? Why did we need a commission to begin working on these laws in Georgia, a commission that was announced on January 7th, on January right. 7th? And what, and, and what happened January 5th, Sherilyn? Well, January 5th was a special election, and January right. 6th was the attack on yep. our, our uh, yeah. uh, elections and on our capital. And so... Not, not coincidental timing. James Carville. So, Sean, first of all, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, my question is a little cultural. Uh, Sunday, I, I did meet the press. I followed about my friend Representative Clyburn. And when President Biden went to Georgia, he, he compared the, what's going on uh, with these Republicans to Bull Connor and George Wallace. The reaction from a lot of whites like Peggy Noonan was he crossed the line. And so they asked Clyde, but, and he said, no, he was right. And I just think that even people like myself, but but all across the, 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 right, the right to vote, I've never known by my family I couldn't vote. Oh, it's just unheard of. This is an election and you go out and vote. The, the black experience in the United States is quite different. This was a hard-fought, tenuous right. And I, I think that they are making a dangerous error in not understanding high and grand. You just talk a little bit about it. In, yeah. in, in the black community, how you grow up as children learning about voting rights and, and, and how important it is and how essential it is to, to, to the American black experience. James, I cannot imagine ever letting my late father know that I didn't vote in an election. The first election I voted in, I was at college. So I couldn't vote in the 1980 presidential election because I have a December birthday, so I was 17. So I was heartbroken that I thought that was going to be my first presidential election. And as a result, my first election was the gubernatorial race in New York. I was away at Vassar College and my father sent me the absentee ballot and that was the first vote I cast and it was for uh, Mario Cuomo as governor. Uh, we went to the polls with my dad when we were young 
uh, that's how important it was. We, we, you know, we were little kids and he took us with him out to the school and we stood on the line because there were always lines in our community because for some reason the black precincts always had the voting machines that broke and that needed to be repaired. Um, and we were acutely aware of that history, that this was a, this was a right that had been fought for, that people had died for it and that we needed to take it seriously, that this was about our voice, that we owed it to our community, to our parents, to our ancestors to participate. So we take this very, very seriously. We also believe that this is a way for us to exercise power to hopefully transform our communities. Sometimes I think we believe it more than white people believe it, that the power of the vote is so important. We also know that we didn't just make that up out of whole cloth. We have whole constitutional amendments that were designed to make sure that we could use the vote. The 14th Amendment, if you read through the entire 14th Amendment, not only does it talk about equal protection, but it talks about punishing Southern jurisdictions if they don't allow, at that time, black men to vote. And the 15th Amendment, of course, is to protect black people's ability to vote. And in both of those amendments are these things called enforcement clauses that gives Congress the power to enforce the guarantees of those two amendments. So this is not just something nice and cultural. It's constitutional. And that's how we grow up receiving it. I thought President Biden's remarks were exactly on point. He didn't compare them to Bull Connor. He said there are moments in our history when you have to stand at the open door of history and decide which side you're going to step on. And you have to decide who you're going to be aligned with. At the moment that protests were happening in Alabama in 1964 and 1965, as you'll recall, it isn't, you know, people thought, many white people thought Martin Luther King was a, was a, a troublemaker. And even in illustrious newspapers like the New York Times and others, they did not agree with the Birmingham campaign. He wrote the letter from a Birmingham jail to white people. So what President Biden was reminding people is that history can be a very different thing than the thing you are living at the moment. You may think that you're being pragmatic and moderate. Um, you may think that um, this is not necessary, that it's overblown. And what President Biden was trying to remind those members of the Senate who are willing to listen is that history tells a different story and that sometimes you have to anticipate and recognize where the, the streams of history are headed and stand on the right side um, of those streams of history. And I thought that call out, frankly, I thought it was overdue. It's a speech I asked the president to make in a meeting with him in July. I asked him to make it last summer um, because I thought it was important because people believe in his decency and also because as I told uh, the president, no one can out-Senate you. This is a man who served in the Senate for 36 years. I don't want to hear someone who served in the Senate for three years telling me that they care more about the Senate rules than President Biden does. He's also an institutionalist. And I think it was important for him to say, I can care about the institution and the institution's rules, but also recognize when we are at an important democratic and constitutional moment. It was powerful. Okay, I want to ask you about one other thing. Let's go back to the events of late May of 2020 mm -hmm. and George Floyd. And there was this great, and you're right, young people, there was this great, I don't know, eruption. There was this great outpouring. And I, I sit here today and I look back, and I don't think much changed. Am I wrong? Or, you know, there was a lot of banging helmets against the lock, and, you know, people were coming out, and, you know, we wanted reform, and, if, if you look back, would you, how, would you describe yourself as encouraged by the progress or 
or as I would look at it, what progress? I mean, honestly, I hate to say that because mm-hmm. not, I generally try to be an upbeat kind of guy. But in terms of, you know, I guess social justice or police reform or any of the things that I, this was supposed to be about, at the end of the day, I'm not sure very much got done. You know, it's funny. A lot of people say that. So I'm actually glad you asked the question. And of course, I was very involved in working on the attempt to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which passed the House and didn't pass the Senate. Um, and I really right. credit, you know, Senator Booker with sticking with it. And I, um, I, you know, identify Senator, you know, Tim Scott for his failure uh, to to right. to uh, move that forward. Um, and I think because people see that that legislation failed, they tend to think what you think, uh, James, that you know nothing happened. But in fact, um, right. and you know, if I if I had the ability, I would give you the link, and maybe I can give it to you after the show. There's a right. lot that's happened at the state and local level. Um, you, okay. you know, New York changed its qualified immunity law. Colorado got rid of qualified immunity for police officers. New Mexico transformed their law. Maryland passed a bunch of uh, transparency laws around policing and the use of force. In fact, we have a whole page on our website that you can go state by state and look at what has been happening at the state and local level. And it's actually, James, incredibly powerful. I think we tend to want the federal solution, which, of course, we want because there are 18,000 police jurisdictions in this country, and we'd love to see more happening at the federal level. But what has happened is an incredible amount of energy and focus. And I will tell you, just as somebody who's been working on this for a very long time, you know, the NYPD police officer killed Clifford Glover when I was 10 years old. Clifford Glover was 10 years old. That's the first time I learned about police violence against unarmed African-Americans in my same community in Queens. And for those of us who've been working on this for a long time, that we even talk about policing reform, that police officers like Derek Chauvin can be convicted, like Kim Potter, who was just convicted after she said she meant to reach for the taser but reached for her gun. The the kinds of indictments, trials, and convictions that we're seeing of police officers were unheard of 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Something has changed. People are conscious of this issue and transformation is happening. And this is a deeply entrenched issue, as you probably know, James and Al, from the 1960s. Oh. Many, much of the unrest that happened in cities around the country were triggered by incidents between police officers and young black people in our northern urban centers. So this has been an issue for a long time. And the movement that has happened uh, on this issue and the way we even talk about it and the ways in which state and local governments are beginning to engage around this issue, not without a fight, but with clarity that this is a real issue that has to be addressed, actually is quite encouraging for those of us who have been focused on this for decades. Well, thank, thank you for that. I, I, and that's a good point. You know, in, in Louisiana, uh, we have a report is coming out, and Representative Cleo Fields, who's from North Baton Rouge, is on it. And uh, my friend Fred Bell and Mr. McKisson, who's very active in I'm Hooking in up with Cleo, but I wish I would take a look at what's going on in Louisiana and give a, a boost because uh, some of the stuff we've had down here is just that. That Ronald Green stuff was it is the most sickening thing it I've is. ever we've, seen in my we've life. We've actually been it's, reviewing the some of the dog biting incidents around Baton Rouge with police officers, and so we, we're, right. we're actually paying quite a bit of attention well, to Louisiana. Right, right. Well, I just wanted to draw attention to my home state because I got I got to set up a, a like a Zoom call with Cleo and, and McKesson and Fred bell uh and i'm trying to help these young activists you know really get 
you know, get things there done. Are things you know, happening. Just, 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 yeah, no, I'm I'm so glad you right. asked the question. And after this, I'm happy to share with you the link to the page where you can just go state by state. Sure. Because I do think, right. you know, for those of us who do a lot of national work, we tend to, if legislation fails, we feel like, oh gosh, nothing has changed. But boy, there's so much activity. I just uh, addressed the uh, Maryland uh, legislature this morning, you know, about the bills they passed last year and tell them, keep going, you know, um, because, you know, you have the ability to, to set an example for other states. So it, something powerful has changed. And it came from the voices of young people pushing on this issue, you know, since Eric Garner was killed in New York. Um, in in 2014 and continuing through last year. Well, good. I'll back to you. Thank that. I don't know that this is. A, I, I wasn't expecting a kind of semi uplifting show in this era, but so far we're doing That's all right. That's my brand. That's my brand. I want every listener out there to listen carefully and re-listen to everything that Sherilyn has just said, both what the Republicans were doing and also the really encouraging news. And Sherilyn, you're right. Unlike you, we do go back to the '60s, and it was those demonstrations, Selma and elsewhere, that paved the way for Lyndon Johnson and the members of the Senate to pass the voting rights bill. So the idea that they uh, somehow are incidental, they're not, they're essential. I want to ask you a little bit about the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. though, which is very hostile. Chief Justice Roberts is a man of charm, of intellect. He expresses concern about the institution. But as Atlantic's Ron Brownstein wrote this week, he has consistently voted against every voting rights bill, allowed voting suppression, starting with Shelby County, but there's been more. And whatever his attractive personal qualities, and this, he really is on this issue the Roger Tawney of this era. Well, we, uh, some of us tried to warn people um, about where Justice Roberts stands on voting rights when he was nominated to be the chief. Uh, this is not new for him. When he, he served uh, in the uh, Justice Department in the Reagan administration and was against the uh, 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. So this is not something he's uh, new you know, to. He, he has a fundamental disagreement um, with this historic piece of legislation. Um, the Shelby County decision uh, in 2013 was devastating. Uh, it took away that protection that we had that allowed you to get at voting discrimination before it happened. And it's actually powerfully just important for people to remember, because time goes so quickly, how the voter suppression laws that we're challenging right now in Texas, in Florida, in Georgia, uh, would not have been possible without the uh, Justice Roberts Shelby County decision. We spend so much time talking, you know, and, and should, talking about Ron DeSantis and, you know, talking about, uh, you know, governor of Texas and so forth. But they would have been stopped. They would have had to pre-clear this through a federal authority to, to make the, the very determination uh, that, um, you know, that, that you, you say the Republicans claim, you know, is not true, whether or not these laws actually have a negative effect on black voting strength. That was the whole point of pre-clearance. And so they had to brought this to the attorney general or to a federal district court in D.C. to make that assessment before the laws went into effect. That's what pre-clearance was. So Roberts removed that. Then I think I have to say I'm even more disturbed by his decision to give the pen to Justice Alito to write this summer's Brnovich versus Democratic Party of Arizona decision, which weakens Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And, of course, ironically, Justice Roberts said in the Shelby case in 2013, but, you know, you still, they still have Section 2. You can use that to challenge voting discrimination. Then they come back last summer and they weaken Section 2. This is not a surprise to us uh, with Justice Roberts. And I'm glad you raise it because, you know, this is what is different. 
than the 1960s, right, is that um, we are in a perilous position in which we have an entire Republican Party that is willing to turn a blind eye. Uh, I just heard, you know, some of the debates earlier and someone like Lisa Murkowski, who I respect tremendously and who has often been a voice of reason, said that the debates today may represent, um, you know, a, a new low uh, or, a, you know, a, a, an unheard of low in cross-party relations. And, I, and I'm thinking, really, when only six senators voted to investigate January 6th, when 140 Republicans, uh, six Republican senators, when 147 Republicans voted to overturn the election, uh, she, she must know that that's not true. So we have Republicans who are turning a blind eye, but we also have a Supreme Court. And we have a conservative Supreme Court, a 6-3 Supreme Court, that, um, that has a real agenda where voting rights are concerned. And if you read the Brnovich decision last summer, in some ways it's even worse than the Shelby decision because Justice Alito takes it upon himself to actually rewrite the standard for assessing claims under Section 2, a standard that the Senate had identified in its 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. So it's a very aggressive move from this court and doesn't give us a whole lot of uh, comfort and encouragement uh, going forward. That's the, that's well, the sad add, part. I can't clean that up, uh, James, and make that sound optimistic. It's just okay. what it is. <laughs> Let me ask one more. One place where you do have a shot, not very many, but are state courts, North Carolina, Michigan. But, you know, here, here's my concern, Sherilyn. North Carolina has a 4-3 majority, Democratic majority, on that state Supreme Court. There are two justices up for re-election this November. I know Republicans will pour zillions into there, into that. And Democrats seem to like the fancy bobbles more, the Senate races, the gubernatorial races, the presidential races. That's a critical contest down there, isn't it? It is absolutely a critical contest. And I'm glad you raised this, too, because, um, you know, we have been really focused on local elections for a very long time. This comes, again, out of the experience of our clients. The people who end up having the most control over the lives of our clients are um, the local district attorney, the local district judge, the sheriff, the county commission. I mean, they are much more conf confronting those people than they are their United States senator. And right. so we focus a lot on local elections, and those judicial elections are critically important. I do agree that the Democrats have traditionally failed to provide the kind of attention to local elections they, sh they should. In fact, we're seeing it right now with gerrymandering. We're doing a, you know, I told you about the two redistricting cases, Alabama and South Carolina, yeah. but that's, that says nothing about the enormous work we're doing around local redistricting. People forget they're also drawing lines for county commissions and city councils and judicial districts, right? So it's not just gerrymandering happening at the state house, you know, for state house districts and for Congress. So there's inc an incredible amount of work to do at the local level. The sheriff matters. We see this whole movement of these so-called constitutional sheriffs who kind of purport to be the constabulary for the big lie. Um, it matters who your sheriff is. It matters who your district attorney is. It matters who your secretary of state is, as we saw uh, after the 2020 election when Trump was doing his tour trying to muscle various secretaries of state and election officials to, uh, to, to overturn the results of the election. So we've got to pay more attention to, the, yes, the state judiciary, but all of the local elections. And when I say we, those who are on the progressive side, I lead a nonpartisan organization. I've sometimes sued your governor, um, uh, James uh, Bell Edwards. He's a Democrat. But listen, I, you know, when I was a young lawyer, 
when Bill Clinton was, was uh, you know, governor of Arkansas, I participated yeah. in the lawsuit against him, too. Whoever you are, whatever governor it is, if we think there's a voting rights problem, you're going to be on those papers. And, um, and so, you know, but we are unabashedly progressive. We know what we want for our communities. And I think we often don't pay enough attention to those local elections that are so critical to setting setting the agenda. And they're also the basis of power as people move up the ladder. We're seeing this with school boards around the country with these so-called uh, anti-critical race theory uh, resolutions that are really about making sure white people don't feel, white children don't feel empathy and don't feel a sense of compassion uh, about the history of discrimination in this country. Um, school board elections matter. And too often, we have ceded those elections and not participated. And I hope people are waking up and understanding that to be an engaged citizen means soup to nuts. You can't go into the voting booth, vote for the president, vote for your senator, vote for the governor, and then say, oh, I don't know who the sheriff candidate is. Or it says, vote for three judges, and I don't know who any of the judicial nominees are. That just won't do anymore. That citizenship is not good enough, and we just got to be better. James. So uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little story, and then I'll explain it. When but Mandy Young wrote this, and he was coming back from Oslo with, with Dr. Mm -hmm. King after he'd won the Nobel Prize. And so King says, let's stop at the White House and see LBJ. So they show up at the White House. Of course, LBJ keeps them waiting for eight hours to bottle the press leaves and then brings them in. And, and so uh, Dr. King said, Mr. President, I appreciate your help on the Civil Rights Bill, but we really need voting rights to be added to it. And Johnson said, you know, I just don't have any gas left in the tank. I've put everything on the line for the civil rights bill. I don't have the power to, to go to voting rights. So they get back on the plane and King looks at Andy Young and says, let's go out and get him some power. And then they started, to, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. organizing mm -hmm. the churches, the labor unions, et cetera, et cetera. And Johnson got sufficient political mm -hmm. lift on them to do that. I know that a lot of Democrats that say they're disappointed in President Biden, or they this or that, and, you know, he doesn't have, he's got a 50-50 Senate, a four-house majority, the polling number's not great. Is a, my view is this, as opposed to bitching about Biden, let's go out and get him some more power to the extent we can. Let, let's organize, let's fundraise, let's do everything we can, as opposed to, a lot of people say, well, he just doesn't look like he has that much power, but we, We'll, we'll try to get him more because I think his heart is in the right place. So I think his heart's in the right place, too. Um, however, um, the reason he has a 50-50 Senate is because people did that. It's because people mobilized and organized and came out and made sure those people came back in that special election. And the result was right. what it was. Right. So that's number one. Um, number two, uh, you know, when I met with the president in July, uh, James, I, I said to him, uh, you know, I've been a political watcher since I were a kid. We had a weird political family. And um, and I, you know, I said, listen, I know what my powers are. And that's why I'm litigating all over the place and doing what I do. And we work with groups that organize and they're doing their mobilization power on the ground. Uh, you're the president. I don't actually know what all your powers are. Some of them I know. I can read the Constitution as well as anybody else. Uh, but you know what are the secret powers, <laughs> and I don't know what they are. You know, I, and you know what the walk through the through the rose garden is with somebody, with some senator. I don't know what that is, but your you know, arm around them, and and something happens. And what we asked was for him to use all his power. One of the powers is the bully pulpit, and we asked him to use that last summer around the voting issue. Now, 
the president gets to, gets to decide what he's going to do. You know, he pushed on infrastructure. I had hoped that after infrastructure, not before infrastructure, but after infrastructure, voting would be the next priority. We went to build back better instead of voting, and now we're real late, and it's hard. So you, we got to have tools in our hand to be able to give him power. As I said, all of that outpouring last year uh, and, and all of that mobilization and all of that organizing produced the results it produced. Then we get the states tightening the screws to make sure we can't do it again. And even worse, creating circumstances so that even if we do do it again, they have in place people who can reverse the outcome of the election. I'm not sure what we can do about that. But it's one of the reasons why you see, James, uh, organizations like Black Voters Matter, they were just getting arrested outside Congress yesterday. People aren't going to stop. We're going to keep the activism going. Uh, people are still mobilizing. People are still registering voters. Um, people are still determined to participate in the political process at the highest possible numbers that we can. But what we are signaling is they have put in place and are putting in place an apparatus that can undercut even the mobilization. And what do we do about that? What do we do about Georgia, where they're essentially creating an apparatus that allows them to reverse the outcome of the elections? Yes, we can keep our eye on them. We're not gonna e obviously easily let them steal our vote for all the reasons that you and I talked about in terms of what this means to our community. So I don't think that, you know, that, that we, I don't believe we can out-organize our way out of it, but God knows we're gonna organize the best we can. I told you I don't believe we can litigate our way out of it, but I'm litigating all over the place. We're gonna use every tool we have but we also need the president to use every tool he has. And that's why I thought his speech was powerful and important. He has to let people know where he stands. He has to give people a little cover uh, to be able to stand up on this stuff. I've met with Senator Manchin three times. Um, you know, I've, I've met with Senator Sinema. Uh, I've met with Republicans. There's nobody I'm not talking to. Uh, so we're all doing the very, very best we can. But we need, to, we need from the top that, that bully pulpit power too. Right. I, I would just say an important component of a president's power is the unity and enthusiasm of his political base. All right. And to the extent that we are part of his political base, I, I think we should be enthusiastic and unified. And if people see that, that will enhance his standing. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a tricky I, thing, as you know. I mean, the president would say this, right? I think what part, part of the reason he's focused on infrastructure and build back better is you want to deliver something to the people so they can say he's doing stuff. Right? Like, and I think that's true and smart. He has. He has. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I am the ultimate fangirl around what the president has done around judicial nominees. It is extraordinary. And this was an issue that was very, very important to us. He got it. He sees it. And what he has done is going to be transformative. Now, people will not feel the, the consequence of that for a while, but mark my words, that's going to be one of the most important parts of his, uh, his leadership. Um, as I've told the president, I don't publicly bash the president because uh, I feel like I have the means to be able to, to um, make my, my concerns known. And I also think that he's done a, a really good job. And I also think that the opposition that he's faced has not been operating in good faith. And so I agree with you that we have to stand behind those who, who we know have our best interests at heart. I have no patience for people who say there's no difference between, you know, Trump and whatever. I don't have any patience for that kind of stuff. But I do know, I do know that, um, you know, part of the problem, James, is that, you know, people who are on the progressive side, part of what we value is dissent and discussion and all that stuff. That's why the other side always looks so organized because they don't value those things. So it doesn't bother me. I don't think we all have to be lockstep all the time. As long as we all know where we're headed and as long as we don't undercut uh, those who are trying to move us forward. And, and I think that's critically important. I get asked to undercut people yeah. all the time every day uh, and I just so, won't do it. 
remember, we have a 40% reduction in child poverty. You don't have you to tell me. You can't vote for yourself. Vote for these you children. You don't have to tell okay. me. I mean, I, do, I actually think, I I actually think I not know, enough I... has even been made of what that child tax right. credit meant and that people would have gotten that check this weekend or Monday, I guess Tuesday, right. you know, had, had it been voted for by, by Manchin, right? So that it just, it, money was just taken out of the pockets of millions right. of Americans. Like, that's what you need to be, that's what people need to be saying. You right. know, it's... I, 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 <laughs> Couldn't agree more, and it's going to go back up. All right. So if you can't vote for yourself, vote for a child. It's going to end up hungry and cold. Absolutely. I'm sitting. I'm sitting here in downtown Baltimore. I mean, this is you know we need, people, families need that money. Families need that money. I just was in a conversation about infrastructure and how we need to get rapid transit in Baltimore to get people to jobs at Johns Hopkins and so forth. So this is real. This is about people's real lives, and um, and I think there's a lot to be said. Uh, but I also see the effort that's coming at us hard to make sure that we can't, um, that we can't hold it. And the last thing I'll say, James, is that, you know, I, I've always said that the game is 2022 and not 2024. At the end of the day, uh, I can say this even in, in a, as a nonpartisan, because they've already said it. If Republicans win the House, we will have two years of impeachment hearings. I, they, we won't know what they're on. It won't make any difference, but it will be just to poison the water. If the, if the Republicans get the Senate back, uh, we will have two years of, Gar, of Judge Garland, of Vanita Gupta, of Kristen Clark, appearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee every day for oversight here. We will be in, a, in, a, in an, a, an atmosphere for two years that is just designed to take our eyes off of what is important, our eyes off of what is moving forward. Um, and, you know, and, it, and it's worrisome. But people get to vote for whoever they want to vote for. My job is to make sure that black voters can vote at the highest levels they possibly can and are in position to elect their candidates of choice. And, um, and and to encourage people to participate, whoever they choose to vote for. But I, I can... Well, the United States, the United States is lucky you own a job. Boy, they uh, are. And I, I just have one final... You've been so generous with your time. One final quick mm-hmm. question. Your cousin, the late Gwen Eiffel, mm-hmm. was my wife's <clears throat> dear friend and anchor partner at the, P- <clears throat> at the PBS NewsHour. You both are daughters of immigrants from mm-hmm. Barbados. What was it in the air or water <laughs> in that island that produced extraordinary offspring? Well, what people don't know is that actually our our dads were from Panama, uh, by way of Barbados. Their their parents by, were from Barbados. A, yes. And right. um, what was it? Well, you know what I think. I think when people make these you know exceptional stories, the truth is, all immigrants are strivers. You don't do the job of coming to the U.S. My father always told the story about how when he came, he had five dollars in his pocket. I'm the youngest of ten kids, by the way. You don't you don't come to this country. Any immigrant. I don't care. Poor immigrants who came from Europe. Immigrants who come from uh, uh, Central America, you know, Mexican Americans, uh, people from the Caribbean, people who come across the border. You, you've got to be a little, you know, in New York, we would say Meshuggah to do this, right? Because you're going towards something you don't know and you don't have it. I would move to another country, but I would have to have a job. I would have to have a car. I would have to have a health plan, right? But these are people willing to take the chance. Um, and so they're already unusual people, is what I say about immigrants. They are a peculiar people. And I think that got passed on to us. We were aware that people made sacrifices, and the expectation was that you would make good on them. And also what was in the water was a tremendous um, belief in this country, with all its flaws, a very clear-eyed view. You know, I always say we watch the news of my father every night, and he talked back at the news. You know, we never just accepted what we heard. We critiqued what we heard when it was coming out. So he had a, a very critical view and understood what was going on in this country, a very critical view about race in this country. 
but fully loved the idea of this country and was uh, committed to it. And I think that's what we got, you know, growing up and a love of, a love of, of politics, politics watching also, which was just fun for us. Well, no family has contributed back more than the Eiffels. No. <laughs> uh, and I cannot thank you enough. Uh, this has been just a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank, thank you so thank much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank Take you. good care. Hey, James, here's a statistic that'll knock your socks off. Every day, 27,000 trees are cut down to make single-use paper products that are flushed or thrown away into our overflowing landfills. That's important because our forests currently remove about 25% of the carbon we put into the atmosphere, making them a crucial part of fighting climate change. Luckily, real paper is here, that's R-E-E-L, paper is here to help in that fight. Real paper is a sustainably made product that helps reduce deforestation and single-use plastic waste. All real paper products are 100% plastic-free and made without virgin tree fibers, meaning no trees are cut down to make their toilet paper or paper towels. Real presents a premium, sustainable alternative, so you don't have to sacrifice quality to help the planet. It's a small change with a big impact. So far, real paper has eliminated over 250,000 pieces of single-use plastics, and each purchase of real helps funds access to clean sanitation around the world. Hey, James, you can't top that. You know, this is a... I, I'm just so glad I know about this. And, and, you know, of course, being from South Louisiana, I'm, I'm nauseated, I'm sick about the effects of climate change. And I promise you, if, if every time you use this product, and it's going to be quite often, just think about climate change. And, I mean, it's just, it's, just a, it, it's a terrific concept these people come up with. But I, I, I think that everybody, when you have this, you know, any time you use a single-use paper, you should think about climate change. It'll put, it, it puts it right in the forefront, and it's a, and it's a good reminder. And you've got to get reminded. You're, you're sorry. I didn't know about it until a couple of weeks ago, and now I have uh, some real paper, and uh, it is uh, being used uh, certainly in, in our house. It, it, you know, it's available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchases on their website, and all orders are conveniently delivered to your door in 100% recyclable, plastic-free packaging. If you head to realpaper.com slash warroom and sign up for a subscription using our code WARROOM at checkout, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order. That's realpaper.com, R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R.com slash warroom, or enter the promo code WARROOM to get 30% off your first order, or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James, one more recommendation for real paper. Ted Cruz. Send it to Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz ought to use real paper. Yeah, you can, if you've got a little extra coin in your pocket, you could send some to Josh Howley. Yeah. You know, Tom Cotton. Rand Paul, he, he, he'd be high on the list. He could, he, could use, he could wipe his body down in it. Hey, don't forget Mitch. No, okay, we got too many people. <laughs> God, oh man, I tell you, this can this can become you know the new Apple for all the people that we need uh -huh. to get this to. Anyway, okay.
Michael Waldman is the head of the Brennan Center, the leading nonprofit fighting for voting rights, equal rights, and criminal justice reform. He has revised his seminal work, The Fight to Vote, a new edition that's out this week that updates the struggles on the right to vote, the cornerstone of any democracy. It dates back to the founders. Michael, the good news. Let's start with good news. God knows we need it this week. You're in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century. Americans went to the polls in record numbers in 2020. That was far from a given. Could have been a disaster. How did it happen? I think you're exactly right. First of all, it's great to be with both of you. I don't think we as a country take enough uh, stock in what an extraordinary thing the 2020 election was. Um, you know, going into that election year, we knew there'd be very high turnout. Think about this. In, in 2014, the midterm, it was the lowest turnout in 72 years. That was a real sign that people were pulling away, t- tuning out from the political system. By 2018, it, it was a very, very high turnout, and we had every reason to expect a lot of people wanting to vote in 2020, and we all thought there'd be voter suppression and the risk of Russian hacking and, I guess, the traditional, the traditional problems, you might call them. And then, of course, along in March of 2020 came the pandemic, and it really looked at first as if we might not have a free and fair and real election in November. Turnout could have just collapsed, as it did in the primaries. And so voting rights groups had to pivot. The Brennan Center, which I lead, in those first days as we were evacuating our office, had to uh, come up with a plan for what to do, which, you know, eventually we all became familiar with of uh, universal access to vote by mail, early voting, safe in-person polling places like arenas and big box stores, and Everybody pitched in, business and religious groups, Congress actually provided funds, so that by election day, despite the pandemic and despite the voter suppression, it was the highest voter turnout since 1900. That's really extraordinary. And as we know, it was a very secure election. Donald Trump's own Homeland Security Department said it was the most secure ever. It was a real national achievement. Now, of course, that hasn't been the only response to it. Yeah, to put it mildly, um, you know, one of the only thing that surprised me is uh, that you write how helpful business was. Business has often been rather cowardly in this. They talk a big, big game and then they don't do much. But they really were helpful in 2020, weren't they? Yes. I, I mean, I wouldn't say they've been universally uh, out there on the front lines. But in 2020, uh, they got involved. Uh, they provided philanthropic support. Um, they, there are a lot of companies that had been working to give their own employees time off to vote. They have a coalition called Time to Vote. By the end, they were recruiting poll workers, hundreds of thousands of poll workers to replace the elderly people who didn't feel safe, you know, going and being poll workers. So they did step up. Uh, the, the NBA, along with their players union, uh, provided arenas. So it was it was actually one of those rare moments where there was a, a, an awakening across the whole society and it didn't really ha- fall on partisan lines so much. Um, and it was also interesting to note that when the election was over and Donald Trump was beginning at even greater volume to spew his lies, the business community actually stepped up then too before the politicians did to say, you know what, the election is over. 
Yeah, they did, but they also said they weren't going to contribute to, uh, to those people who voted uh, for the big lie. There's 147. And, and of course, they're back contributing now. So there are some exceptions. But, you know, a lot of them figure, you know, their tax rates and their regulations count more than voting. But that's, that's for another day. Yeah, their go, lobbyists certainly made that point to them. Absolutely. Go through the big lie. Go through how proven it was that, that Trump's uh, big lie uh, was just that. Yet it's one of the most pernicious conspiracy frauds in American history. It's really quite extraordinary because, you know, We've had fights over voting forever. We've going back to the founding. Some people wanted to be able to vote. Uh, other people wanted to stop them. We started out with only white men who owned property could vote, and uh, and and immediately there was a push to change that, and then black men, and then women, and eventually in the civil rights movement and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, really everybody in our multiracial democracy could participate. So we've had these fights before, but we've never ever had what we have now. Before the election, of course, Trump began to heckle and and really try to collapse turnout. He he blurted out at the very beginning, saying, "Oh, if we do these things, make vote by mail available, the level of voting will be so high, we'll never win another election." And then he kind of remembered his script, and a few days later, and said, "What I meant to say was, I'm very worried about voter fraud." And he was screaming about this on and on. He refused to. Uh, to agree to a peaceful transfer of power. He uh, pro proposed postponing the election beforehand. I, in writing these new chapters of the book, I kind of got the chance to delve into all the craziness. I'd forgotten so much of it. And then when the election was over, and Biden and Harris won pretty easily, actually. It was the biggest, it was the highest popular vote win for a challenger for the presidency since Herbert Hoover was defeated by FDR in 1932. Obviously, it was closer in some of the electoral college states, but it was basically a pretty clear win. And Trump that night said, actually, I won. And he began spewing these increasingly fantastical uh, conspiracies and lies about voting machines in Venezuela and Italian spy satellites. And he brought 60 lawsuits. 60 lawsuits were rejected by the courts. Uh, and it's not the case that they were rejected on technicalities. The judges, including conservative judges, including judges Trump appointed, saying, I've never seen anything as flimsy as this. Um, his own attorney general, not my favorite, William Barr, called it bullshit. He said these voter fraud claims are bullshit and, and told the public that it wasn't true. Uh, his own Homeland Security Department said it was the most secure election in history, so what did he do? He fired the guy who said that. And then, as we have now learned, it, it, it was even more serious than all of that. Um, it, it looked so chaotic and, and absurd and clown-like at the time, but we now know more and more there was a real serious effort to overturn our democracy, to overturn the election. Um, and what we saw was that there were people, election officials, even the Secretary of State of Georgia, who who is not usually a friend of voting rights, but when Trump called him up and said, can you find 11,000 votes, he, he released the tape. Um, and even for that brief fleeting moment of courage and conscience, Mike Pence, um, they stood up. Uh, and and we, we nevertheless had the insurrection. We had hundreds of police injured. We had five people die. But it was even more serious if it could be said, then it looked at the time. And what's scary now, among other things, 
is that, uh, you know, that was chaotic and, and clown-like. The next time may not be. And we're seeing a systematic effort all over the country to strip away the protections that stopped uh, the election from being overthrown last time. James. Thank you, Mike. Uh, No one that listens to this podcast, I dare say, thinks that the election was stolen or anything like this. But I do hear this from people that I would consider sane. Said, you know, James, these voting restrictions, they're overblown. They really don't affect turnout that much. You shouldn't, you know, get your panties all in a knot over this. What's the evidence about voting laws and turnout and how much effect does this have? And and I hear this from not crazy people, by the way. People are just... There is a very uh, robust, smarty-pants crowd effort to say, oh, this stuff doesn't matter. Oh, this is the wrong strategy. This is the right strategy. So help me with some talking. Write me up some talking points here, dude. Some of these laws are worse than others. Um, They're invariably targeted in very careful and pernicious ways at black voters, at Latino voters, at Asian voters, and also at young voters. Um, uh, So that in Georgia, take that, for example, The law, as it originally was rushing toward enactment at the beginning of last year, and the Brennan Center has continued to document that 19 states, by our count, passed 34 new laws to to make it harder to vote in one way or another last year. Um, And as I said, some are are worse than others. The law originally in Georgia, as of a couple of days before enactment, ended early voting for anyone under 65, excuse me, ended vote by mail for anyone under 65. In other words, older conservative white voters could and everybody else couldn't. It ended vote by uh, early voting on the Sunday used by black churches. It repealed originally um, automatic voter registration, which Brian Kemp, when he was secretary of state, had put in place. There was enough of an outcry. And you might remember the Republican Lieutenant Governor refused to preside over the state Senate if they were going to move forward with this, that it was really um, uh, it, it was really trimmed back, but not in a way that equally affected everybody. So they they banned mobile voting. Well, the only place in all of Georgia where they used mobile voting was Atlanta. Um, they this this kind of vivid example uh, where you're prohibited from providing food or water to people waiting online to vote. Well, who waits on, that doesn't sound like the worst thing of all time, but who is it who's waiting online to vote? Over and over again, it's documented. It's people of color in poorer communities having to wait online to vote. And then at the last minute, and we see this in other states as well, in Texas and other places, at the last minute, they added on top of these kind of voter suppression ideas, election subversion. They changed who counted the votes. They changed who certifies the election. They took that Brad Raffensperger because of his flash of conscience. They took him out of counting the votes. He's the secretary of state. And so, uh, first of all, I do think it's important to note that these laws do have a bad effect. A lot of the worst laws passed over the last decade, a lot of the studies on this, I think, uh, are, are misguided in a pretty fundamental way. A lot of the worst laws were blocked or softened a lot by the courts. But now the U.S. Supreme Court has thoroughly demolished the Voting Rights Act, most recently in uh, the, the Brnovich case uh, in, in 2020. And so the legal protections that previously stopped these laws from being really bad 
aren't there anymore. Um, to me, in a sense, that's what worries me the most uh, about this. Everyone assumes that whatever is right now is a snapshot and it can't get any worse. But as the Congress is debating federal voting rights legislation, if it is the case that uh, even with a Democratic president and a House of Representatives passing it and a majority of the Senate supporting it, that Congress cannot pass voting protections because of the filibuster and the 60-vote threshold. And the Supreme Court and the federal courts are stepping back or affirmatively bad. Then that gives a green light to states to just do your worst. And, uh, and, and this is exactly what happened in the late 1800s, uh, interestingly. You know, we all kind of at this point, we know the story of Reconstruction that actually black men had the right to vote uh, and it was taken away in the Compromise of 1876. Reconstruction ended in the Compromise of 1876, but, but it didn't happen right away. And as of 1890, the majority of voters in Mississippi were black. And there were KKK and other kinds of attacks on voting by, by black men. And when the Republicans that year had their trifecta, they, they tried to pass a federal voting rights bill uh, in the House, it passed, and it was filibustered to death in the Senate. It was the first big filibuster of a civil rights measure. And when that happened, that was the green light to states. And the southern states responded by passing the Jim Crow laws. And the result was seven decades of disenfranchisement uh, and discrimination. So I guess part of what I would say is it can get worse if we don't have strong national standards and protections for our elections. So you remember in 2004, the Republicans put an anti-gay marriage on the ballot for a referendum. You know, in the, the, in, so some of my more moderate friends in the Bush years would say, well, James, that actually didn't, there's a study saying that actually didn't work. And my answer is, who gives a shit? You thought it was going to work, didn't you? <laughs> I mean, right, right. you put it in there, but... I mean, if, if these voter suppression laws don't suppress the vote, then a lot of very smart people are wasting a lot of time passing them, and a lot of other very smart people are thank wasting you. a lot of time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. If, I, I, I don't know, but you, somebody's doing it, you know, like the uh, drive through voting in Texas, which is a huge thing in Houston. They just did away with that. For what? There was no fraud. Right. There's no reason to. Well, and, you know, Texas already has very, very harsh, uh, strict voting laws compared to the rest of the country. And under this new voting law, uh, the county clerk in the biggest county in the state this week said that they had to reject half the requests for absentee ballots for the primary election this time, right now, because of the new law. This stuff has teeth. It bites. Good. Good. Out. Well, I, and I think they make it a crime in Texas and Harris County uh, to solicit absentee ballots. Uh, well, uh, from and you, you both know how how politics works in the in the real world and at the grassroots level. These election officials are under assault. We did a survey uh, of election officials. One out of three have faced threats, and a lot of them have faced violent threats. And, you know, these are not the most glamorous jobs in America. These are not the big bucks jobs. People are going to be leaving these jobs, and there's a systematic effort to replace them with truly insane um, stop-the-steal people, election deniers, as we saw in that rally in Arizona where the person running for Secretary of State, who I assume has a decent chance because 
if he winds up the candidate of a major party, he certainly has a decent chance. Uh, th these are absolutely out of their minds conspiracy theorists. He's a QAnon guy, and he may be the Secretary of State of, of Arizona. Oh, wow. I mean, this is, it goes back to the point you made earlier. This is so much about race. Uh, I think you noted that the Georgia law was signed by the governor in front of a painting of a slave plantation, which is really a great metaphor for what this is all about. Let me stick on Georgia for a minute, because what the, uh, what the defenders of that law say, hey, we, you know, we didn't end early voting, we actually extended it. But as I understand it, they extended it in a way that it makes it, makes it easier for rural whites to vote, but not for urban blacks. Is that, is that correct? That's right. When you dig into the when you dig into the details of the Georgia law, even the good stuff has bad elements. And and it's basically the the purpose of that law was because they were being driven by the big lie and trying to make sure that, among other things, Stacey Abrams doesn't get elected governor next time. Um, and uh, if there are good elements in that law, it's by accident. Um, yeah. And the another argument they make or others make is, hey, you know. Uh, States like Delaware or New York don't have a lot of the things that Georgia is cutting back on. And to that, I say, you're exactly right. Except Georgia's heading in the wrong direction. New York should be making sure everybody has, for where I live, should make sure everybody has uh, vote by mail access, has early voting and all these other things. But that, but that doesn't mean that it should be uh, sending in the wrong direction in the states that do have it. Right, and I'm not going to defend the Delaware, I'm typically not going to defend the, the New York law, but there's not the history of suppression that there has been in Georgia and some other places. Uh, you know, I, based on my experience in New York, um, massive, astonishing incompetence is at least as strong a force <laughs> as anything else. No excuse, but uh, yeah. as opposed to kind of outright Confederate malevolence. Michael, one more question. The Supreme Court, I think in this book you write that you are worried, this is a court that's been so hostile to voting in minority rights, you're worried that, that their next move could be to give state legislatures the sole authority to set voting rules, which strikes me as antithetical to the Constitution, but what do I know? So this is their next move. And you see this go from fringe legal right-wing idea to Fox News talking points in real time. So what they say is that the Constitution intends to give only state legislators the power to send in any of the rules around elections. They call it the independent state legislature doctrine. It's not a doctrine. No court has ever ruled this. But there are four Supreme Court justices who think it's seem from what they've said to think it's a good idea. And 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 I've done, you know, they say these days, do the research. Well, I'm not like looking up COVID cures, but I've done the research on the Constitution and it's really an interesting thing. It's called the Elections Clause. It's not the fam most famous part of the Constitution. It says that the state set, uh, legislature set the time, place, and manner of elections, but that Congress may at any time uh, override that and set national rules. Right, right. James Madison put that in there. He insisted that that be in there because he believed state legislatures were corrupt and that they would be captured by a faction, what we would now call a political party, and that they would do what we now call 
voter suppression and gerrymandering. They, they didn't call it that then, of course, because, you know, Elbridge Jerry was standing there. They was standing right. Don't want to offend Elbridge. Right. Yeah. Well, they invented the word yet, but that was literally, you read the debates, they're talking about the same kind of stuff as now. And uh, Madison was onto something. He, he knew a lot about the dark side of human nature. And, but what the Republicans and conservatives are saying now is, oh, it has the word legislator, legislature in it. That means the legislature gets to do everything. That means the state constitutions can't apply, even though they had them back then. The state Supreme Court applying their state constitution, the federal courts can't apply, let alone the election officials. It's a completely nutty theory, yet that could be the way that they give even more power to the partisans because it's, you know, it's not exactly a coincidence that state legislatures are the most conservative neighborhood in America. Michael, uh, I don't want to get too much to the reason. I want to turn it over to James, but how do they explain that other part of the Constitution that says, except Congress can override? Well, it's, it's, it, 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 here's the thing. It's a little bit of a shell game. So in, a, in, in the case in 2019, you may remember there was a case where the Supreme Court said, you know what, partisan gerrymandering, bad thing, but we're not going to get involved. It was called Rucho. And Chief Justice Roberts said, judges, we, we're not even going to hear these cases, but don't worry, Congress has the power to do it. And he actually pointed to this legislation that's on the floor of the Congress this week. Uh, it was Then it was called H.R. 1. He said, they, that's constitutional. They could do that. I'm sure he didn't think it might ever actually get close to becoming law. But he, So what they say is, oh, Congress has the power to do this. Except, of course, as we all know right now, if Congress won't fix itself and if the Senate will not make it so that it can pass important bills like this by majority vote, then Congress has, it can't tie its shoelaces. So uh, that, that's the challenge of it all. James. So in your home city of New York City, I think I'm correct, I read that non-citizens will be allowed to vote in municipal elections, right? This may be good public policy, all right? I, I, but it, I'm telling you, it, it, it's not a good headline in the rest of the country, all right? It just well, isn't. And, you know, we, we, it, it, I will talk about it in terms of that national debate. Right. There is a lie that is being spread always by those who want to restrict the vote saying, oh, this is all about making people who are not eligible to vote uh, able to vote. Right. And, uh, you know, there's actually history in cities of non-citizens right, being right. able to vote. And, you know, there's arguments for it uh, because they're paying taxes right. and they have their kids in school. But in terms of the national debate, um, it is something that uh, that is of concern. And, um, you know, whatever we do, we need to be very careful that we don't put non-citizens in the position of accidentally voting when they shouldn't be. Uh, you know, being on the voter rolls and People have to be pretty sophisticated to know, oh, you know, if it's an even-numbered year, it's a federal election, I guess I can't do that. And it's an odd-numbered year, I can vote. Right. Uh, and I do worry uh, that we, we need to make darn sure that we're not putting non-citizens at risk of accidentally breaking the law and putting themselves at risk of being deported. Right. It, it doesn't – just going back to my days in law school – but the 14th Amendment applies to person. Since no person shall be denied equal protection or due process of law. 
Well, I mean, if, if I were like a strict constructionist, I'd say, well, of course they can vote because the 14th Amendment gives them equal protection. But I'm, I'm just, I'm not a, a, I'm obviously not a legal person. I'm a political person. And I just, I, I, I think this is, you know, open for people to kind of understand, if, if you will. Yeah. That's, that's look, all look I, there's a reason that in federal elections and in state elections, too, we've always tied voting to citizenship. Right. Um, uh, it, it's it's part of being a member of the political community. Um, that's not to say there aren't strong arguments. You know, I, I, no, no, the, the, the Gavin Newsom, who I guarantee is running no for president, it's, it, it's making health care, sure. you know, available to non-citizens. That, as a public policy matter, I think it's probably pretty good public policy. All right. I think, I mean, again, I think that, you know, these folks in a place like New York City, they're paying taxes. Uh, they need police protection. Uh, their kids go to the schools. Um, and when the country had a lot of immigrants back in the past, non-citizens could vote. And it's certainly understandable why, uh, why that argument is made. There's also no question that we have to make sure that this doesn't become something that undercuts right. the very real protections uh, in in the federal law and and uh, national voting, there, there may be some good ideas, but timing is also an idea whose time is coming, keeps coming and coming and coming. And uh, you know, critical race theory, which is I even know I've tried to figure out what what the shit it is, and I still can't figure it out. And I've everybody in the world try to tell me what it is. I have no idea why anywhere it is taught, but if, if you, you know that explodes in, in, in Terry's face. I mean, it, 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 it's unbelievable how people are susceptible to believing the worst of anything about Democrats. It, just, it really is. James, James, I want to assure you, you're not alone. A number of those state legislators have said, I don't know what it is, but I want to ban it. Right. Well, I actually tried to figure out well, what it and, was. You know, as a result, you, get, you can have all kinds of debates about how we teach American history. But as a result, you get people like in Texas where uh, one of those laws passed and they, they were – the teachers were told you have to give both sides of the Holocaust. Oh, the, the head – It would be divisive the, the otherwise. Educa Louisiana yeah. State House Education Committee said we need to teach the good and the bad about slavery. Except, man, if I'm a black parent in Louisiana, I'm, shit, I'm sending my kid to school where the, the guy who was the head of the education right. committee right. wants us to talk about the good of slavery. In Virginia, where, you know, I think um, the new governor in some ways has pulled his mask off, given how hard right he went, at least in his first days. He's kept his fleece vest on, but uh, but, <laughs> but the rest of the stuff was, was pretty hard right. In Virginia, one of the uh, legislative leaders proposed a very detailed bill saying what you were allowed to teach in schools. And they were allowed to teach, they said, about the Lincoln Frederick Douglass debates because those were well, absolutely. So, Trump said Fred's still doing a good job. But 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 what what wait a minute, what 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 could they what could they not teach, Michael? You know anything after eighteen oh eight, I think. But I mean, they could dig Lincoln Douglas, but you couldn't go on to the Emancipation Proclamation or that kind of stuff. You know, um, I was um, I just happened to be uh, uh, working with some of my colleagues yesterday on a statement on, on this voting bill and, and wound up looking at Lincoln's second inaugural. Um, and I realized that that is a pretty strong statement about slavery, slavery as the cause of the Civil War, the, the justification for the shedding of blood. And you could not teach Lincoln's second inaugural under some of these laws, I think. 
well, no I, more field trips. Well, I, I know a little bit about that. The religious people should love it. I mean, it, it had re- real biblical overtones to it. I mean, it, it was kind of Old Testament stuff, too. There were yeah. a, a lot of New Testament. He, he, in the very last paragraph, he said, well, let's all get along. But it was, the, you know, it, it, so many of Lincoln's, uh, the Gettysburg Address and that were explaining how slavery completely was at odds with the American creed, right? Uh, with the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, and that that was what we had to rebuild the country on, this new vision. And so when we look at history, you know, I think we need to teach the bad as well as the good, but we also need to remember that those original ideals had enormous power. They did in the voting area as well. Going back to the book begins, uh, you know, with Jefferson writing that government in the Declaration of Independence, that government is legitimate only if rests on the consent of the governed. And, uh, you know, he was a hypocrite at at best, of course. He was attended to by a 14-year-old enslaved boy while he wrote that. But the ideals of American equality were so powerful, they really began to change toward democracy right at the beginning. Um, uh, In 1776, uh, you know, the states each had to write their own constitution. And Pennsylvania had the most radical constitution in the world at the time. And they actually got rid of that property requirement that only white men who owned property could vote. And Ben Franklin wrote the Constitution of Pennsylvania. And he said, he explained it, he said, um, there's a man who owns a jackass. And it's worth $50 so the man can vote. Then the jackass dies. The man is older and wiser, but the jackass is dead so the man can't vote. So who <laughs> really has the right to vote? Ben Franklin asked. The man or the jackass. Pretty good. Uh, and, and they went to John Adams, who was writing the Constitution up in Boston. And they said, hey, you ought to do the same thing on the property and the property requirements so poor and working class men can vote. And Adams was aghast. And he said, if we do that, women will demand the right to vote. Lads of 18 will think their interests insufficiently attended to. They will demand the right to vote, and men without a farthing to their name will think themselves worthy of an equal voice in government. They will demand the right to vote. John Adams said, there will be no end of it. And that's basically the story of the country. Some people wanting to expand democracy, other people trying to push back, and there's no end of it. It goes on and on. I wonder if he shared that with Abigail. But um, uh, well, remember, she her response to the Declaration of Independence was, "Yeah, geez, that's great. What about us?" Yes, yeah. Hey, this has been oh, terrific. Uh, I, James, and I are so appreciative. And out there, I want you all get the new edition of the Fight to Vote by Michael Waldman. I think you've up, but you have about a you know five or six dozen new pages and new histories uh, yeah. in that, and it never has been more relevant than it is today. It, so, Michael, you're just a great educator, man. I, I hope you're teaching somewhere because you, you, not only do you have like a deep knowledge to. of history, but you understand it in its context and are able to explain it in, in, in ways that really enlighten people. It's a real gift you have, I promise you. Well, you're very kind. Con- I learned how to do some of that from both of you. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to remember the jackass voting for a long time, uh, Michael. Michael was, one more reason to love Ben Franklin. <laughs> oh, he, he was the, he's the patron saint of where I teach, the University of Pennsylvania. <laughs> so uh, it makes me feel even fonder of him. Listen, this has been terrific. It's a really important week, and you have educated us, as James said. Thank yeah, you very much. Superb education. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Hey, the new year is here, 
And that means it's the perfect time to up your game personally and professionally. So 2022 is the best year yet, and that's why we recommend Blinkist. Blinkist is a powerful self-improvement tool that takes top nonfiction books and gives you key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks that you can digest in just 15 minutes. There's no excuse not to try it. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination, get started in developing an idea or a business, take your projects to the next level, or finish titles like The Prince by Machiavelli. I haven't read The Prince in a long time. i got to go to Blinkist. <laughs> a Short History of Brexit by Kevin O'Rourke and The Soul of America by John Meacham. The Soul of America is one that, that we all love. It gives us hope that in spite of the current division and rancor, our history shows the better angels of our nature tend to triumph. Right, James? And you can get it on Blinkist. I, I completely agree. I, I used to tell my students that I, I've known successful people who weren't that smart uh, or anything else. I've never known someone successful that was not curious. And I suspect that 100% of the people that listen to this podcast are really curious. And if you're a curious person, there's no better, there's no better thing than Blinkist because you can say, satisfy, satiate your curiosity on any number of fronts. And I, I just think this is a, a, a incredibly useful product. It's, it's the best thing to come along since Wikipedia. Yeah, it's right up there with it too. You know, I, yeah. I, I remember Cliff Notes when I was in college. I kind of found them kind of yeah, useful. <laughs> we used to have like, a, you yeah. know, the law professors used to rail against this stuff. And, yeah, yeah. You know, we had a rule. The more they complained about it, the better it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, really, they, they Blinkist has blinked thousands of titles. It's in 27 categories. And if you like podcasts, you do, that's why you're listening, they blink those too with Shortcast. And it's all in one app right in your pocket so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash warroom to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off of a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's Blinkist.com slash warroom and get 25% off in a seven-day free trial. Again, Blinkist.com slash warroom or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, now for our listener questions. First one, James, is coming. There are two, same one, basically. Susan in San Diego and Mary in Hume, Virginia. What are your feelings about Stacey Abrams not showing up for the Biden-Harris speech in Georgia? And how, it's gonna, how does it impact Biden's agenda? And how does it impact Stacey's race in Georgia? Well, I, I'm befuddled. I, I, I really have not... I, 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 you know, very much admire her in her political skills and her savvy and what she's done for voting rights. I'm not, I never heard much of an explanation of why she didn't go. She said there's scheduling conflict, which is the oldest excuse in the world. So I, I just don't have a good answer. Do you have any better answer than I have? I, I don't, James. I think there was some pressure from some, some, some of the activists down there who said Biden didn't do enough uh, on voting rights earlier. Yeah, that's right. He didn't. But, uh, but he is now, and now is, and now is the time to rally, not to hide, not to duck, not to evade. Right. So I, I, I have respect for it, too. I think she made a big mistake. I don't know how well, it will affect I, I, the race. I was listening to NPR the day before, and I think he was the head of the NACP, some big voting rights guy in Georgia, and he said he was boycotted, too. And his reasons I found stunningly unconvincing. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. But Biden, Biden should have just, and we know if any listener has something, can set the record straight. Is is Sherilyn set the record straight with me about uh, what's happened police reform over the last year and a half? Yeah. Uh, James, the next question is from Laura Lee in Northwest Arkansas. I don't know where in Northwest Arkansas. She'll tell us next time. Walmart. I think Fayetteville, University of Arkansas, Walmart. She notes that the two voting rights bills uh, passed in the House, if we somehow, she asked, managed to end up with two more Democratic senators after the midterms, that could give us 50 yes votes and we could carve out voting rights from the filibuster and allow for a simple majority, right? One problem with that, that's right, Laura Lee, but you have to keep control of the House. Because the House with a Republican majority won't pass it. So if you want to do that, I think, you know, if you have a normal year, you know, uh, economy's great and Biden bounced back, back from these awful numbers and you pick up two or three seats in the Senate and you barely hold the House, you can do that. But if you lose either one, you can't do it. I, I, I could kiss her. I, there's something that's like, we don't have a parliamentary system. He has a four-year term. There's a congressional election. There is no, you know, it, it looks kind of grim now, but it, it, if the economy continues to improve, if the virus gets better, we have a pretty favorable, we're not going to get a favorable Senate map like this, 2024 is not going to be very good. And, you know, <clears throat> if we can do that, and that's, that's what our aspirations should be. We all think the world's going to come to an end with this session of Congress. Well, it, it, it may if we lose it, but if we do better, we could have a, a, a good 22 to 24. She's exactly right, and no one makes this point enough and makes it loud enough. Don't give up. It just, if you just listen to, to people talk, you say, well, it's all over. We're going to lose 2022, and right. it's inevitable. And No, it's not inevitable. We haven't voted yet. And remember, Laura Lee, you got to win both. You got to keep the house yeah. and get those extra senators to Absolutely. offset. Absolutely, but Laura Lee has got she, she's on the money. She is on the money wherever she is in Northwest uh, uh, Arkansas. Yeah. Maybe it's I'm just going to assume Bentonville, Fayetteville. Yeah, because uh, we can't remember the name of most of those other towns. <laughs> James Frank in Geneva, Switzerland, says some countries have compulsory voting. Should the USA? It, it, no, I, I, they do, it, it, you know, but in a place that have compulsory voting, like of Austria, they, they have one election every five years. It, it, you have compulsory voting for sheriff, you have it for the state legislature, you have it for statewide offices, you have it for the county deed recorder, you have it for president, you have it for Senate, you have it for Congress. I mean, we turn around, there's an election, you know, every other week in America. So, and how do you enforce it? We can't get people to wear a mask without fighting and slugging flight attendants or something like that. I, I, you know, it's it's nice idea. Appreciate the thought. Uh, it, it's just not a workable idea. Yeah, he, he's he's right, Frank. Um, we ought to do everything we can to make it easier to vote. We did a lot in 2020. We ought to continue to do that, and we ought to grow. We ought to you know grow that um, that ease. Uh, it's going to be hard given the Senate and given the Supreme Court, but you, 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 there can't be compulsory voting. I, I really object to those voting purges of people who haven't voted in the last two elections. They take them off the rolls. Some people, for whatever reasons, family problems, uh, disinterest, uh, don't vote. I wish they would. But, you know, they ought to stay in the voting rolls unless they've died or they've moved to another, another jurisdiction. So compulsory voting wouldn't work in this country. 
Dan in San Diego says, again, we're staying with voting rights, James. Voting rights is good for the country, but bad for most Republicans. Getting them to vote purely against their political interests might be difficult. Is there anything Democrats can put in this voting rights bill to get them on board? Hey, the answer, Dan, is not anything that would help turn back the voting suppression and provide more voting rights because that's what they want to do. Mitch McConnell likes these laws. He likes voting suppression laws because it gives him more voters or it gives him proportionally more voters. So no, I don't think there's very much you can do with it all. Please read Brown Brownstein. Yep. And it, it does, John Roberts has never, has never seen a voting restriction that he didn't like. They, they, I, I, the Supreme Court and Republicans think we need, you know, they want more because they can't win. If you can't win under fair rules, what do you do? You rig the rules. That's all that's going on right now. Right. That's all that's going on. And it's so rigged that, that just the, 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 the electoral college is rigged, the Senate is rigged, the voting laws are rigged, the, the population distribution is rigged. And, you know, we've won seven out of eight popular vote in presidential elections and basically barely hanging on to power, of which we could lose a substantial part of it in November. And during that time, I think, what, five of the eight Supreme Court appointments have been Republicans. Yes. And, and you know, it, it's, it, 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 there's a risk of the country not just being as anti-democratic as it is, but it's on a path of, of being more anti-democratic. And, and I, I keep hearing that, you know, the, these uh, seditionists or, or these people, well, James, they, they, they have an issue. They have raw status and economic. Well, yeah, you have an issue. But the way that you resolve issues is not storming the Capitol. I, 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 and, I mean, a, a lot of base Democrats are going to say, you know, we're a majority of the country, d- demonstrably provable in, in seven of the last eight elections. And what do we got to show for it? Not very much. It's going to build up. James, next, Matt in Riverside, California. Uh, he said, I love your show, and I used your link to get Blinkist, and I love Blinkist. Yay, Matt. He said, my question is about money and politics. People like AOC and a safe district get tons of money, which often comes from progressives in New York and California. It reminds me of people like Amy McGrath now, and now DNC Chairman Jamie Harrison, who received tons of outside money when it was extremely unlikely they'd win. How does the Democratic Party encourage more donations for Democrats in places uh, like Kentucky towards winning local races and winnable swing seats rather than the big rock stars of social media? That's such a good question. It goes to what also what Sherilyn Eiffel was talking about earlier. The focus needs to be more on local races. But these two questions, this question, I mean, I don't think it, me and I talk a lot. Why were people sending Amy McGrath that kind of money? All right, uh, and I mean you, you, you're so right. And somebody, some young bright person, has got to put up a, an ad- fundraising advisory site. All right, that this is this is a race you hadn't thought about. The Secretary right. of State in Wisconsin. Right? It's right. the, you know, any any of these state legislatives, you know, ultimate swing North Carolina State Senate seat, or something like that. Somebody in, in I'm. I'm too old to do it and, and keep up with it, but somebody that needs to be part of something that that 
gives guidance to Democrats on fundraising because you're right. We 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 tend to to be for that which we are really against. Even we love hopeless causes. Yep. Right. No. And you, you. we we need some some pragmatic advice. I think with with with. with our friend from Riverside, isn't that where Jim Fallows? I think he's from. He's uh, in that uh, area for sure. For sure, well, San Braves and San Bernardino, but it's right. kind of the, the, but the other way papers. You're part of the paper there. Part of yeah. But but th- this is something that you know that th- this question is like triggered something, and, and maybe there is, you know, on philanthropy, you have like Charity Navigator. I can look up and see, you know, yeah. how, how legit some philanthropy is, but. Somebody is, you know, there needs to be somebody that, you know, gives advice to Democratic donors because we're wasting a lot of money out there. Okay, James, let me throw one more to you. And this is this is from Rusty in South Yonderup, Australia. South Yonderup. I'll tell you one thing, Rusty, you're not watching uh, Djokovic play in the Australian Open. And I tell you, I'm glad because I don't think you deserve to. But... That's not Rusty's question. It is, I'm wondering why if the hardcore rioters, Oath Keepers, and uh, were so badass and armed with firearms, they didn't use them. The battle ended up being a medieval fight of clubs and shields, the police showing great restraint and not using firearms, but I'm surprised <clears throat> the rioters did not use them. <clears throat> were the police holding back until the rioters started shooting? How, how did it play out? Well... Remember what we found out in in the Stuart Rhodes indictment was there was a whole cache of weapons. I guess there's some fifteen thousand rounds of ammunition, and they were at all camped at a hotel in Boston, which is in suburban Northern Virginia. Yeah, they, and they actually had boats. To I think the plan was that we're going to find out is they were going to breach the Capitol, then be in, and then they were going to deploy. Just to, to to hold that position, and you remember Trump never came out and told him to go away until it was obvious that the assault had failed. All right, right. I right. think they were planning on them being in there and then having reserve troops being ferried across the Potomac with weapons to further secure the capital. I I I, I think that's what the six-one uh, commission is looking at it, the 1-6 commission. The 1-6 but, but the commission, question is yeah. very pertinent. It sure is. We, we now know that in this coordination, and we knew that we were at the Willard, we knew the Oval Office, we knew the, 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 the people on the ground, we know that there were people in the Congress that were aiding and abetting this, but but there's now we found out that there is another command center in Northern Virginia waiting to deploy more people with, with more weapons. And, and that 15,000 figure, James, was just from one person. We don't know how much there was. <clears throat> there yeah, may have been lots just, more. It, it's in the indictment, and, and, right. and you can look it up. And, and we just keep finding more and more and more. Right. One more and, little tidbit that I read from, from um, uh, I think it's Heather Richardson-Cox or Heather Cox Richardson. Yeah, I, I read her a lot, too. She is absolutely fabulous. She pointed out a little notice fact that at one point, uh, Grassley, there was a thinking that, that uh, P- Pence would recuse himself from that count and that Charles Grassley, being president pro tem of the Senate, would preside and the feeling that Grassley would do what Pence wouldn't do. Grassley even said the day before, he said, I don't expect Pence to be here. That should be pursued more. We need to find out, was Grassley in on the fix? Uh, well, also, what has to be pursued are these fake al- alternative things that were sent to the Congress where they oh. forged the state seal 
and I guarantee you there, there's got to be 10 laws in Title 18 that, you know, that right. you can't submit that. And, and I, I guarantee you, I should say I guarantee you, I'm highly suspicious that a lot of this is coordinated by Trump himself. I hope that Merrick Garland is looking deeply into this. I think that and the, uh, and the 1-6 Commission uh, will get to it. Okay, thank you very much. Keep those cards and letters coming in. We'll try to get to them all next week. You know, the new year is a great time to focus on what's most important to your life, like nutrition, finances, and your health. And whether it's saving money by ordering less takeout, learning to cook, or prioritizing your wellness, HelloFresh is a delicious meal service with endless options to make cooking at home simple and enjoyable. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, including veggie, calorie smart, family friendly, and gourmet of options providing plenty of variety recipes like hibachi, sweet, soy, bavette steak, and shrimp. Bring restaurant-quality meals right to your kitchen, while their white cheddar wonder burgers make it easier than ever to skip the takeout. We love that you can easily customize your orders on the app within minutes with fresh, high-quality ingredients that go from the farm to your kitchen in less than a week, all delivered right to your door. HelloFresh is a can't-beat value. HelloFresh is 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal, the same quality, and you can save on the average over 65 bucks a month when you order HelloFresh instead of grocery shopping. Plus, your whole family will love it. And James, you are a gourmet, and you love it. Well, I, I love it. Now, I, I'll say something. It's, it's 72% cheaper than eating restaurant foods, and honestly – it's better than 92% of the restaurants you're going to go to. And you don't, you don't have to go out. It, it, and, you know, people of our generation would see something like this. You know, of course, we go back to something like TV dinner, just general frozen foods in general. And this is an entirely different product. And, I, I mean, I've used it on, on any number of occasions and will continue to use it. And you're going to find something that even the pickiest eater is going to find a, a, a bunch of different things that you have. It's got more variety than any restaurant menu I've ever been in, I can tell you that. And it's just a really high-quality culinary product. You, you're not giving up anything in the taste department, I promise you. For sure. So you go to HelloFresh.com slash WarRoom16 and use code WARROOM16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. For America's number one meal kit, remember, go to HelloFresh.com slash WARROOM16 and use code WARROOM16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts or look for the link in our show notes. And the cleanup is easy. Just a bloop. Hey, James, now for our outrages, and I want to stay on the voting rights uh, debacle and problems. Uh, you know, we celebrate the contributions of one of the greatest Americans, Martin Luther King Jr., this week, and the tributes poured in. Now, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy praised King's preaching of, quote, the gospel of freedom. Number three House GOP leader Elise Stefanik lauded his efforts to, quote, secure civil rights and equal rights for all Americans. And then, Jim Jordan, the tough guy of Ohio State wrestling fame, said King celebrated the content of one's character. All three voted against the John Lewis voting bill, 
and the voting rights legislation, measures that King would have considered essential to civil and equal rights. But let's go over to the other side. On the Senate, Mitch McConnell said MLK's message, quote, echoes as powerfully as inspiring us toward that goal of a more perfect union. And little Lindsey Graham hailed MLK as a, quote, true fighter for social justice who believed in the potential of America, end quote. And Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, Josh Hawley hailed King as a, quote, true change agent to ensure all are treated equal. Now, all three of these senators, at the same time they were putting out these um, high-sounding words of praise, along with every one of the other Republicans and Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, were voting to not even allow a vote on a bill to protect voting rights for blacks and other Americans. James, it was over a half century ago that Dr. King spoke of the, quote, tragedy of a Senate where a minority of misguided senators used the filibuster to keep the majority of people from voting, end quote. McConnell, Graham, Hawley, Cinnamon, and Manchin are worthy successors to those misguided senators of yesteryear. Well, I'm not going to try to top that because I can't. And what people don't realize is how ingrained voting rights and the right to vote are in, in the black community in the United States. And I think that people are like playing with fire here. It's a really dangerous thing that they're doing. I was reading about, I think it's Lincoln County, Georgia, where they reduced it down to one voting place. I mean, this is a, it's not just that we have to pass this bill. There's an all-out assault around this country on voting rights, and people are not going to take kindly to this. Now, I hope that the reaction is, is so overwhelming that whatever the difficulties that people come out and vote, but I'm not sure that's going to happen, but this can, they're going to anger, uh, really anger, and justifiably anger a, a, a large portion of our population. That's what's going to happen. This is, this is outrageous, man. I mean, I, who, who ever thought we'd be arguing about people voting after everything that we went through in this country? But, you know, here we are, and I'm... I, I, it's, it's just, it's very, very, very distressing. It is, James, and the failure of the Senate to act on this only emboldens those vote suppressors down in Georgia and elsewhere. You know, what Georgia, what that Georgia law did, you know, designed to try to curb the black vote, which turned out in heavy numbers and voted for Biden and voted for those two senators, they, they, they almost, they sharply, dramatically reduced the number of so-called drop boxes in Fulton, DeKalb, and Calv and Gwinnett counties. Uh, which all voted Democratic and were heavily used by African-Americans because, A, they were secure, they were safe, and they were easy. I mean, you can't fiddle with a drop box. Now, after dramatically reducing them, there's a new cracker down there, legislator, who wants to eliminate them altogether. He is emboldened by the act of the Senate. So thank you, Republicans in Cinema and Mansion. Yeah, I, it, they are. And I, I, you know, let's see what the... Democratic reaction is or what our turnout is in, in, in 2022. But, you know, if I'm a Republican, they're getting away with everything. Right. And as Ron Brownstein pointed out, there's never been a voting restriction that John Roberts does not like. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We don't have the idea that you had some access because the Supreme Court would protect you. There is no, no, no black person in the United States 
that feels like they have any kind of protection from the Supreme Court, yep. and for good reason. I yep. wouldn't. Eat. I mean, I, I don't either. But I, I, I can. And th- these guys don't know how deep this stuff runs. They, 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 they're playing with nitroglycerin here. I promise you. This is a weak James. To coin that old phrase, it's going to live in infamy. It really is. Oh, it's a, God. It's a, it's but, a but, terrible thing. You know, time. They, they did Shelby County versus Holder, which was, you know, idiotic yeah. and everything else. They got away with it. Yeah, yeah. They I just know. got away with it. And and you get away with something until you don't. And and the, the, the buildup and the frustration out there is is, is going to possibly lead us to not a not to a very good place. I, I, I really wish that uh, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema would – Really give hard thought to this, but I, I, well, they they hope. didn't give hard thought to it because reading their explanations, they are historically incorrect. They both cited right. the founders. I mean, I'm sorry. In the Constitution, there was a carve out for three that required a supermajority in the Senate. It was for impeachment. Uh, it was for treaties. Uh, there was no carve out for other things. And, and in fact, what the what the what the Senate what the founders basically envisioned was a real majority. That's why they talked about the vice president as a tie-breaking vote. So their history is wrong. The rationale that it brings us together more if we have a filibuster is just insane. So I hope so too, but I'm not optimistic. Uh, they, they need better staff work. Yep. I mean, somebody could have, you know, that. That's not, you know, they like I say, the, the the founders actually like talked about it, and they said, "No, we don't want that. We'll just we'll lay it out where you need it, and that and that's it." You, you, your history on this is exactly right. It's it's just distressing. I mean, it, it's just distressing that in maybe they really believe that faulty history. I don't know. I, I can't believe I can't believe they do, but they might. Well, that's sad. It, it's sad if they if they really believe that because it's a it's a myth. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, Real Paper, Blinkist, and HelloFresh in the show notes. We really thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. Just a thump, bloop.